Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hadia Rodrigue, writer, lawyer, PhD. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. Hi, Jesse. It's, uh, you know, back on Canada land. The OG place for me. <laughs> it's good to have you back. Thanks. Uh, today we're going to talk about a few things. Listen, it's ceremonial. It's symbolic. But who says that symbols and ceremonies don't matter? We're going to talk about Mary Simon, Canada's indigenous head of state. We're going to talk about the Hudson's Bay Company. They did something racist to you, Adia. But so long as it's the first racist thing in their history, I say we let it slide. Well, we'll get into it. And the Ministry of Heritage releases its principles for diverse beneficial content and ethical information online. And no, that is not the title for the next Borat movie. It's good to have you here. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to everybody by Carolyn Godreau, Michael Dusen, Nick Cameron, Jade McGilvery, Michael Nyo, Luke King Goddard, Terry Mayo, and Alan. Hi, my name's Alan, and I'm a singer and choir director in downtown Toronto, and I support Canada Land because nobody else is doing quite what you are. So thanks, Canada Land, all the best. 
everyone. For the first time in Canada's 154-year history, the Queen's representative in this country will be Indigenous. I can confidently say that my appointment is a historic and inspirational moment for Canada. Simon is from Kujuak, Nunavik in Quebec. She's the former head of Canada's national Inuit organization, Inuit Tapirit Kanatami, and she's led the Makovic Corporation and the Inuit Circumpolar Conference. And Simon was selected through a new vetting process after former Governor General Julie Payette left the job over allegations of workplace harassment. So that's from the news coverage of uh, Mary Simon's first speech accepting her new post as Governor General of Canada, as the de facto head of state of Canada. But Hadia, I found the more interesting coverage of this was in the conversation that Indigenous people were having on Twitter, which I want to get into. What did you make of this appointment? I mean, I think it's about time that we had an Indigenous Governor General. I know that there's been some people saying that, you know, she's not bilingual. And I'm like, she is bilingual. It's just not one of her languages is French. But she is bilingual in two of the languages that are spoken in Canada. Um, But I think, you know, she seems, from what I've read, to be a great person to hold the role. Um, Someone who has been forging relationships for a long time uh, with the Indigenous community in Canada. And to me, seems like a great choice. She is uh, not a French speaker, and uh, there have been some salty comments. She pointed out that she did not have the opportunity Though she was born in Quebec, uh, she did not have the opportunity to learn French as a child. That was denied to her. I think that, like, the bigger issue that immediately occurred to me is how interesting this is. On the one hand, like, wow, this is the officially the de facto head of state of Canada. This is the Queen's representative. And though there's sort of, like, this balancing thing of, like, that is an incredible historic moment in the history of this country from where this country began to have an indigenous de facto head of state— And yet she's the queen's representative. But, you know, like whatever I feel about that, I was just really curious about what the conversation was like amongst indigenous people online. Can I share with you some of the, like, I've just been fascinated by some of the conversations going on. Yeah, because for me, I think it's, it's an odd juxtaposition. You're representing the state that also took so much from you. She obviously did the internal work to to decide that she was okay with that role. I also think, you know, Yes, it's the Queen's representative, but like, when has the Queen ever been involved in Canada? <laughs> you know, like, the Queen's role is really ceremonial. Um, so is the Governor General's. I mean, I nothing know. about this is practical. Everything about this is, is optics, symbols, ceremony, significance. Yeah. There is a very specific political meaning to this. You know, Justin Trudeau is at a point where his vision of reconciliation is completely frayed, and whether or not he can kind of hold this idea that his cabinet can contain Indigenous people, it can't. Like, he's obviously more comfortable with a strong Indigenous woman in a ceremonial role than a practical, empowered role. And this is a gesture to solidify or try to retreat back to a place where he can actually, the center can hold on his vision, which was falling apart. But this is all just me. Yeah. I want to read to you from some of the conversations. So this is um, Russ Diabo, who is a really interesting voice on Twitter, a Mohawk policy analyst. And he was kind of just went for it and said, lol. I figured the next governor general would be an Inuk or Métis because Indians, this is Rustiabo, Indians are either too bad with a checkered past or can't be entirely trusted to be loyal to the crown. 
exclamation mark, just calling it as I see it. And musician Tanya Tagak, who is Inuk, responded, well, put some fucking glasses on, if that's how you see it. Inuit are no more or less complacent than you are. Weird tweet. And Russ said, I wear glasses, and what I see is the Inuit choosing a public form of government, not self-government, as First Nations have been striving for. Moreover, Trudeau government has been implementing an indigenous melting plot. I like that play on words. Trudeau has been implementing an indigenous melting plot by imposing a pan-indigenous approach to water down inherent and treaty rights. And Tanya says, I agree with you. It's just that you don't get to be pan-Inuit and say we are all complacent government dick suckers while you are the pure Mr. Best indigenous man without me saying something. Lots of interesting stuff going on in that exchange. Yeah, I mean, I love Tanya Tagak. I like that she just says what she what she feels and what she thinks. Um, I mean, there are other problems I have. Like the fact that this is, he put someone here in a ceremonial position he didn't consider an Indigenous scholar for the Supreme Court of Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it's great that this the next person is going to be the first person of color, um, but that was a place to put someone who would have real power and real control over the laws going forward. And this is a man who's still fighting Indigenous children in court. Yeah. So at, at some point, this is, you know, a symbolic gesture. I am more concerned with how he actually is putting truth and reconciliation into practice. Don't distract me with a ceremonial appointment. Can you just like stop fighting the children? And can you actually deal with the legacy of residential schools? Can you actually deal with the problems we have in our society and the way that we've treated Indigenous people for so long and continue to do so? Can you deal with the massive um, problems we have in our justice society? You know, couldn't handle Jody Wilson-Raybould in your cabinet as your justice minister. Like, you got a lot more work to do. This isn't, this isn't enough. This isn't even the bare minimum. And could it even be hurting? I mean, I kind of like Tanya in that exchange, but I also get Russ's point. There are other First Nations who are not looking to be integrated into the Canadian project. Like, this is an attempt to say, hey, Canada is flawed, Canada is imperfect, but Canada has room for Indigenous people, even at the very top. And there are many First Nations saying, we don't want anything to do with that, right? Yeah. We, we, we want nation-to-nation relationships. We're not looking to be absorbed into this project. And this complicates their case. But then Alethea Arnacook-Baril, we have to pause for a second. And whatever advantages this hands to Trudeau, this means a lot. And Alethea, who is Inuk, says, really proud of Mary Simon being the new GG. Many Indigenous nations do not identify as Canadian, but Inuit do. So anyone trying to diss an Indigenous woman for taking the role can back off. And she clarifies that even she's, she's, I'm personally not proud of Canada and do not accept what Canada even is in the minds of settlers and the colonial government. But I have to respect that my people collectively chose the path of joining this governance system and trying to make a go of it. I don't know. I just learn a lot on Twitter. There's just a lot going on that I didn't have access to these conversations before. Yeah. And it's, it's damn interesting. And Indigenous people are not a monolith. They're not all going to think the same thing. They're not all going to have the same opinions. And to expect that they would is foolish. And Mary is also her own person. She also gets to make decisions for herself and what she thinks is best for herself. And this is a decision she has made for herself. Yeah, I would agree with you up to this point. I mean, now she's kind of officially the Queen's yeah, person. Yeah, now she's, and, and, you know. Now she is, you know, Captain Canada, but. We don't have governor generals making many decisions, you know. But I don't know. I kind of, I'm kind of curious if she's going to be 
look, she's, she's a diplomat, right? She's been doing this a long time. But I'm kind of curious if someone's going to get a little bit punk rock with the role, like what you could do with it. There's like little subtle ways you could you could probably do something interesting with it. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I really hope she brings a lot of Inuit culture into the role and into... Where is it that the governor general lives? I always forget. Is it Rockcliffe? Or is that the opposition? You're going to embarrass me here with my lack of... <laughs> well, I don't know either, Jesse. So, <laughs> But, you know, the building has a lot of ceremony, and I, I hope that there's going to be a lot of Inuit culture and Indigenous culture um, incorporated into those ceremonial rituals and into that ceremony. The governor general has two official residences, Government House in Canberra and Admiralty House in Sydney. Wait, is this Australia? That's Australia. Holy shit. <laughs> Wrong country, Jesse. Wow. There, I, I tried to explain Canada to you, and I explained Australia. Isn't it Rideau Hall? It's Rideau Hall. So, down by the bay, what can we say about the Hudson's Bay Company of Canada? They recently launched an effort to support education, empowerment, and employment opportunities for Indigenous and Black people, people of color all across Canada. Hadia, what could possibly be wrong with that? Well, they used my face to do so and did not... They used your face. Yeah, they didn't get permission from me or from the photographer. They did not get permission, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. I'm sure it was just disturbing. Like, it wasn't just this photograph of you. It was like, give us money and here's a picture of Hadia. These were like little placards that they had asking people to give money to the Bay and get change. And this was promoted with your image. Yeah. So I was one of four images that were used, um, as I understand it, nationally. That is extraordinary. So I know this image. It's a striking image of you. It's a beautiful photograph. I know why they would want to use it. You look fantastic in it. And it's just a powerful black and white photograph that I remember from a terrific essay that you wrote. That was in the Globe and Mail, correct? Yes, Black on Bay Street. It was sort of the essay, and it's the iconic picture of me. So that was particularly interesting. And in their campaign, asking people to give money to empower Black people, they, uh, they just took your image without permission. Yes. So as I understand, they had used my image on some mock-ups or some inspirationals sort of figures um, that were circulated internally. There was no watermark placed on my name on the image, and it got accidentally used as the final image for the file. And nobody noticed when it was printed uh, that it was super low resolution because it had been pulled from the web, and nobody noticed that it was the wrong black woman featured in the photos. I believe they'd intended to feature somebody else. I don't mean to make light of like, I think how, what a mind fuck and just how intrusive that must feel to have your likeness used without your consent for the cause. And one that kind of like, I think dovetails with things that you care very deeply about, but also promotes them. I don't want to take away from like, that's disturbing. But like, I did have a laugh at how bad a fuck up it was and the irony of like, wow, did they ever, did they ever fuck up? Like, you know, in their efforts to virtue signal uh, that they are promoting the empowerment of black women, they, they literally disempowered a black woman. And the, the funny part of it for me was if it had been anyone else, but it was you, you, you have a voice that a lot of people don't have. You have a platform and you are a lawyer. And as soon as this came out, it was not a good day for the Bay. No, I was quite literally the worst person that this could have been done to you for them for those reasons that you state. Uh, 
you know, it was particularly upsetting to me because it was literally this campaign for education, empowerment, and employment of Indigenous and Black people. And I literally was not employed nor empowered when this happened. And it's just the irony of it was just so, it's just like so heightened. And the fact that it was this photo, right? This is a photo that means a lot to me. This was the photo where I'm I'm on the cover of the Globe and Mail of an essay that went viral, an essay that is very meaningful to me and meaningful to a lot of people. And for it to be that photo um, that was co-opted, you know, really, really stung. Um, And it's to walk into a store and see yourself being used to raise money for the Bay, for, you know, to solicit money for someone else when you don't have any part of of that. And, And to be frank, I would not have approved of my image being used for this purpose, even if they had asked. You wouldn't have. If they had asked me and approached me, I would not have. Why? Um, A, I don't really want to be a model. That's not my, uh, that's not my scene. And B, I do a lot of research with the companies I give money to and I'm associated with. So, um, you know, any of the charities, I'm a lawyer. I do my due diligence when it comes to charitable giving and make sure um, that I'm giving my money and my dollars and my time and my effort um, to places and causes that I really believe in. And you know, I think their end goals and some of the organizations that they work they are working with look like, you know, worthy organizations. They seem to be like a middleman in collecting the money and then giving it to to them. So I mean I have asked them how much of the money that is donated actually goes to these uh charities and, and they're gonna get back to me with that answer. But, you know, I'm a I'm a person who's thoughtful um about the causes I support and those that I sort of lend my voice to. Should I infer from that that uh, though you though you might support the end recipient of the funds, the fact that the intermediary is the Bay, which is like before Canada was Canada, it kind of was the Bay. You know, uh, it's got a very specific history. Yeah. And they're very explicitly, they're saying that like this whole campaign, the Charter for Change, they're trying to reconcile their past. Yeah. So can I infer from that that you're not looking, like of all the things you could get involved with, helping the Bay reconcile their past and improve their image is not necessarily a top of your list. Not top of my list. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I get you had, you, you have a terrible history. It doesn't mean you have to have a terrible future. Right. And so I would never look down on an organization or someone's attempt to be better than they have been in the past. I think a lot of the times when we see people do things and mess up and make mistakes, I want to see them grow and move forward. I don't want them to be stuck in the place where they were when they made the mistake. So, you know, you take your Aziz Ansari's. He had that whole weird date thing. I don't know how how to describe it, but... Has he learned? Has he grown? Has he moved forward? I don't think people should continue to be punished indefinitely for mistakes that they've made if they make retribution, if they show that they have changed, if they have shown that they have grown and moved forward. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, same thing in the penal system. People go in, they do their time. They shouldn't be continue to be penalized forever and forever and forever once they have, you know, served the time that we have decided is appropriate for, for what they've done. And so I applaud generally organizations' true and concerted efforts to do better. And I think we should all be encouraging places to do better. But that doesn't mean you want to be their poster. poster. It doesn't mean I want to be their poster trip. Yeah. 
just being involved in media production, I totally can see how this happened. They're jumping on the spirit of this moment of racial reckoning and trying to be a positive player in it and trying to make themselves look good. And I could see in their early, you know, let's just get a placeholder image in here. This is a great one. And then I can see how, like, they're claiming, like, oh, it just sort of slipped through the cracks. That's totally possible. No matter how big a company is or how great their processes are, people fuck up all the time. But I also can see, like, the way that I know that things sometimes happen, which is somebody's boss says, that's perfect. I love that image. That's that's amazing. And then the kind of to-do list line item of replace that image with one that we have the rights to kind of gets forgotten somehow. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. We don't know, you know? I mean, they had, they told me that they had everybody else's clearance and approval and releases. They did use some stock photos as well. I was the only person and it was a, a mistake in the folder that was containing the images. So I don't think this was done maliciously, but it's not a great look. What's going to happen? Are they going to give you some money? Are you going to, like, are you exploring your options? Like, what's what's the outcome of this? Yeah, I'm talking with them, exploring my options, uh, trying to think creatively about um, some ways that we could, you know, work collaboratively to figure out a good solution. So it's not, you know, there's no animosity um, happening here. And I'm not happy that this happened and it's had an impact on me. And I've had to spend a lot of time doing things that I didn't need to do. And I had many other things that I should have been doing on Monday and Tuesday, um, including like earning money. But yeah, we're in conversation. The conversations have been positive and we will move forward. I think that's worth saying. I know a lot of people like, you know, they see that you're giving interviews and talking to me right now, or like there's going to be some kind of settlement with them. There are a lot of other things you've accomplished that you are better known for and would rather be known for. You know, this is no, yeah. this is no like happy thing, you know, like, it, no. like that's fucking weird to see your face used, you know? Yeah. The thing that I've been I'm trying to use this opportunity to talk about is, you know, I have a lot of privilege. I am a lawyer. I have a public profile. I knew what to do when this happened to me. I had resources I go to. I had friends. You know, the nice thing about being a lawyer is that a lot of your friends are lawyers and they're very good at their job and they know a lot of things. I had access to that information. I had access to those resources. But things like this happen to Black people, to Indigenous people, to other people of color all the time. People's images are stolen, their work is stolen, their ideas are co-opted, their art is taken without retribution and without the access to the resources that allows them to fight those injustices. And so I'm trying to use this moment to highlight that, yes, this happened to me, but I'm lucky. I have the ability to do something about it. This happens to so many people that don't. And the fact that I'm a lawyer that just was a good thing for me that I knew how to mobilize and how to deal with this, how to get things taken down, what remedies should be. But there's so many people who have their work and their selves and their livelihoods appropriated. And so if you see this happening in other domains, you know, please say something, do something. Don't let this happen to other people. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. 
but often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hadia, on this program... We duly note things that uh, require due notation. Um, I would like to begin by duly noting that a subaquatic fireball opened up a hellmouth in the Gulf of Mexico. And the way that this was reflected by the Canadian media was as follows. Here's CBC. Greenpeace Mexico is complaining about the fossil fuel industry. Is that what you got? Have people seen these images? There's a giant fucking ball of lava spewing into the... Ah, Greenpeace Mexico, they're complaining. And CTV, environmentalists slam Mexico over gas leak. I mean, they were picking up the same wire story because neither of those news organizations has anyone in the Gulf of Mexico covering this. But what a bizarre way to approach that story, that this is like environmentalists are... Ah, they're always complaining. I mean... The ocean is on fire. (laughs) Like, guys, the water is on fire. Like, how are people not freaking out about this? Mm. We had 49.5 degrees in British Columbia, which is supposed to be, you know, the good old 20 degree year round place that we're all supposed to move to when we retire. Like, I am freaked out. I am freaked the fuck out. Yeah. I think we should round up. Like, what is this 49.5? Like, I think 50. Like, <laughs> it's 50 degrees. The weather was 50 degrees. And it was like day one, it's 50 degrees. Day two, yeah, that town isn't there anymore. I mean, I think in Canada, we have, we tend to think of, you know, we've got all this fresh water. I think we have 10% of the world's fresh water. We're north. We're just going to shift north and we're going to be okay. We're not going to be okay if all the trees are gone. We're not going to be okay if everything is literally on fire. And eventually the fire is going to get so big that we can't put it out. Duly noted. Hadia, what do you have? So we know about people who have been living in parks uh, because the city's shelters are inadequate for protecting them from COVID. And recently in Trinity Bellwoods, a fleet of police officers descended to remove people from their homes. And I was riding by the other day and they've now got fences up with security guards. And the city is now claiming that the security fences in Trinity Bellwoods remain so that the grass can grow. 
Like, I don't know if you've gone to any other parks in Toronto, but there's plenty of places where it needs the grass to grow, and it's not the place where everybody was living. So the city continues to spend money, again, on security guards instead of spending that money to ensure that these people can be housed. So they fight Khalil with his tiny homes, you know, him doing the work that they fail to do themselves, evict people who were living peacefully and now put up these fences to protect the grass. They are more concerned with the grass than they are with people. Are they protecting the grass or are they just trying to stop people from setting up more tents there? Of course, they're just trying to stop people from setting up more tents. The grass looks fine. I looked at the grass. The grass is fine. Yeah. Um, this is clearly just to block people from from settling there again. I mean, let's also regard the absurdity of a bunch of security guards protecting a fenced-in square of parkland with nobody playing on it. Nobody, yeah. yes, nobody's living on it in a tent, but nobody's like, that's just a weird image. Uh, yeah. So something's wrong, duly noted. All right, I want to talk about this document that I learned about when Andrew Coyne tweeted, what the hell is this? And then put up a link to this government document from the Heritage Ministry, Guiding Principles on Diversity of Content. Now, reading this thing, I had a similar response to Andrew Coyne. I'm like, is this a joke? Is this a parody that some like right-wing libertarian put up to say like, oh, if, if the Stalinist state of Canada tries to control the internet, this is the kind of thing we're going to be looking at. I thought at first that this was a joke, but in fact, no, it's a real government document. And how shall I, how shall I express why this upset? Because some people said, guys, calm down. Listen, you libertarians, you're so sensitive. This is just filled with like nice statements about wouldn't it be good if content online, this isn't binding, this isn't the law. You know, we want to have diverse voices. What's wrong with saying we want to have diverse voices or we want to have good information or things like that? Hadia, in order to convey why I think this really fucking matters, I'd like to read some of this document, but where the document uses the phrase diverse content online, I'm going to replace that with the word songs. Okay? Okay. So this is the Government of Canada's Guiding Principles on Songs. Introduction. This document aims to provide actions and measures that foster greater exposure to songs. This exposure to songs should contribute to a healthier public discourse, greater social inclusion within society. It should bolster resilience to disinformation and misinformation and increase our citizens' ability to participate in democratic processes. And signatories to this letter, agree to implement the following principles by 2022. Exposure to a variety of local, national, and international songs, as well as songs from diverse and pluralistic sources, should be promoted. Song literacy for all citizens should be improved to further the public's ability to critically assess songs that they encounter, and ethical song standards should be upheld and encouraged. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I've looked at their four key themes, which they describe as the creation, access, and discoverability of diverse content online, the fair payment and economic viability of content creators, the promotion of diverse, credible sources of news and information, as well as resilience against disinformation, and the transparency of the impacts of algorithmic treatments of online content. On their face, that doesn't sound terrible. Those are all good things. For me, it's that I'm not 
actually clear on how this is going to be implemented. And so the principles are vague enough that I don't actually know what this means. And that's what concerns me. I would say it's about who's saying it. Like, it's one thing for me to say ethical journalistic standards are important online. Everybody would agree with that, right? But when the government says ethical journalistic standards need to be applied, that's very different. You know, people thought, uh, some people thought I was uh, a little hysterical when in order to bail the media out, the government had to decide who's media and who isn't. But it was just a practical thing, right? People like, Jesse, this isn't about government control of the media. This is just like a practical thing. They've got to decide who the money goes to. And I was like, no, slippery slope. Well, here's the slippery slope. Now we have another government document talking about ethical journalistic standards for everything online. Now, what's the big deal, you may ask? When the Trudeau government was exposed by the Globe and Mail for the SNC-Lavalin scandal, I'm sure if you would have asked Justin Trudeau, do you think this Globe and Mail report is ethical? At that moment, when it endangered his government, he would have found that, he would have said that that's a very unethical piece of reporting. It happened to be a true piece of reporting. I I don't want my government involved in this kind of stuff. And and this document, which like, I guess this is the the guiding principles for everything on the internet uh, going forward, but don't worry, it's not legally binding yet, uh, is terrifying to me. Yeah, so I think... The issue lies with, you know, who gets to determine what's credible. Yeah. Because if you have a right-wing authoritarian government in place, their definition of credibility is going to be very different than someone else's. Um, And so it's about, you know, it's about creating documents that really do promote fairness and democracy. But, you know, is that, is that even possible? Um, I mean, I do want, I would like to see things about the transparency of, you know, algorithms and news algorithms, because I do think that people end up in these sort of, you know, you Google one thing about QAnon and all of a sudden your entire feed is QAnon and then you go down some deep, dark rabbit hole and end up as a conspiracy theorist. That's not great. And I think there is research that shows that, you know, the news you get on Facebook is is very kind of curated and shaped based on these algorithms. And I would like to know personally more about how these are happening. But yes, the news piece may give some concern. Yeah. Look, I'm not against regulation of the internet in various ways. But this is weird. This is something else. Yeah. The Trudeau government has this basket of internet concerns, which range from, we don't like harmful content. We want to protect big telecom. We want to have a cleave off of CanCon funding. We want to make sure that Canadian content gets front loaded. There's a fake news scare, you know, revenge porn. Like there's like a whole bunch of stuff that all gets filed under bad shit on the internet. Yeah. And then they kind of go off into a room and who signed this document? Google. Hmm. But the internet is not just Google. The internet is for everyone. I mean, I think so many times I want people to focus on enforcing the laws we, we already have. You know, we have laws on hate crimes, yet half the time they're not even applied to things that are hate crimes, right? We have certain laws, like, you know, your right to free speech does not give you the right to incite hate against another group. Um, So let's, you know, work on enforcing the rules and regulations we have to make sure that some of the hateful news that is out there is not being uh, shown as news and is not promoted. Let's actually have some teeth and some enforcement of a lot of things that we have to, to deal with these problems. You make a terrific point. We have those laws. We also have privacy laws. We also have antitrust laws. We also have taxation. Like there's a lot of legislation 
that could be applied to the internet, existing legislation, that for some reason, um, because of this early days of like, oh, there's there was this fear to look like we're anti, that government is anti-tech or anti-progress. So they just took this hands-off approach. Like, to me, it's crazy that the, like, one people's primary source of news is a thing that a guy developed to rank women at Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and that we let this take over the world. Yeah. There were many points at which Facebook could have been stopped, Facebook could have been regulated, Facebook could have been monitored. Governments made a conscious decision not to do so. I mean, it's not too late. We could do it now. You know, I know, I know. But will they? Well, instead, what you get, I mean, Facebook is not a signatory of this, but but Google is. But I think what they both have in common is they've moved from an earlier policy position of saying, oh, you guys are a bunch of dinosaurs. You have to let tech flourish. We know how to do this. And now they I think they've correctly gauged that the winds politically have turned against them. And so now they actually are like, you know what? We're big enough. We come in peace. We're happy to go into that back room with you, government, and hammer out a deal. You know, regulate us, give us the rules, we'll follow them, and we'll do our best to bend those rules as you write them to our benefit. So this really literally is the government and Google getting together to come up with a list of rules that Google can live with. Yeah, Google should not be involved in that process. No, I mean, and like who's representing, of course, I have a specific interest as a tiny independent content business, but I think that of greater importance certainly than my interest or Google's is that the public interest in a free and open internet is the predominant interest in how the internet should be governed. And I don't know, I'm sure they've got some public interest group or somebody so that they could claim that the public had a seat at the table, but who even knows that this shit is happening? Yeah. I mean, I went looking for this document and for news articles about it and I didn't find any. Well, it's, uh, it's now on Canada land. Yeah. Go Jesse. <laughs> You're here too. We did it together. That shortcuts for this week. Thanks, Adia, for joining. Thanks, Jesse, for having me. Hi, everybody. It's nice to be back. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. Hadia, where can people find you? You can also find me on Twitter at Hadia Rodrigue. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. There's a new episode of Commons series on real estate. Check that out. Theme music is by So-Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. 
A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.